This is the Howell Creek Radio address for Tuesday, October 21st, 2008. I'm Joel Dewey. This is episode 24 which means that last week it happened to be episode 23, which should have been cause for celebration and reflection, except I didn't realize it was number 23 at the time. Only after the whole thing was in the can and on the air, ooh, there's a bit of metaphor mixery for you, courtesy of industry lingo, did I have this thought, oh yeah, all the other podcasters number their episodes. I wonder how many I've, I've done. So I went down to my hard drive and counted, and there were 23 MP3s. 23. that doesn't ring any bells for you, count yourself among the uninitiated. 23 is a universal mystic number that turns up everywhere, far too often than would seem to be accounted for by any special place it occupies in the number line. I'm not making this up. There are 23 letters in the Latin alphabet. The 23rd letter of the English alphabet, W, has two points down and three points up. Shakespeare was born and died on April 23rd. If you go to Psalm 46, King James Version, Count 46 words from the beginning, 46 words back from the end, you get two words, shake and spear. And 46 is, of course, twice 23. And 23 figures prominently, but mysteriously, in the phrase 23 skidoo, which was the first truly national fad expression and one of the most popular fad expressions to appear in the United States, according to the Dictionary of American Slang. 23 is the number of atomic detonation tests performed by the U.S. at Bikini Atoll in the South Pacific. The list goes on. There are really too far, far too many to list here. But keep your eyes open as you listen to the radio and you'll see what I mean. And remember this when you're at the lake. On average, according to tidal wave frequency, every 23rd wave is twice as large as the average wave on any given day. Work really began in earnest on the house this last weekend. I mean, a lot of work has been done out already, but that's been mostly by other people to get it to the point where it is now. With a foundation in, new sewer and water mains, sand backfilled around the basement walls, and so forth. In a word, things have progressed to the point where actual carpentry is being performed. Hammers are being swung, nails pounded, lumber cut into lengths at very close tolerances. On Thursday, I picked up a whole stack of lumber at Lenard's on the way home from work. Another load was delivered Friday morning. So Friday afternoon, Mr. President and Mark and Snoo were out helping us snap lines and cut sill plates. Saturday, after a large breakfast of eggs and donuts, we were out all day, working on it and preparing for the first floor system. I haven't done any building in a long time, and now that I'm stepping back into it, it feels like I never stopped. All the same tastes, both good and bad, come right back into your mouth. The sense of accomplishment, the joy of working outdoors, the danger of making very expensive mistakes, the satisfaction of seeing your long, double and triple checked calculations all work out and result in something tangible and strong, are all somewhat tempered by slivers in your hand, nicks in your knuckles, and the nagging sense that you're not getting as much done as you could or should. 
when working with one's hands, the ever-present danger for people like me who think too much is falling into the thinking-ahead mind trance. This is where, during a pause in the labor, you stop and look at the house and begin thinking ahead, trying to visualize how you will build this or that part of it. And thinking about that leads you to thinking about another part of the house, things you will need to buy, people you need to call, and before you know it, your mind is trying to devour the whole house in one giant planning-ahead daydream and getting led down rabbit trails and coming up with all sorts of details about which you will later feel a vague sense of unease because you never wrote them down and can't remember them. It happens far too often, and it can be very difficult to snap out of. And it does absolutely no good, because however far ahead you think, almost none of that effort will have anything to do with the board in front of you that you need to measure and cut and nail. In the afternoon, Pepper walked over some chocolate chip bars and a thermos of cold milk for a snack. And the true convenience of having a job site within 500 feet of home was suddenly very apparent. About 700 glorious calories worth of apparent. Pepper and Gracie also helped from time to time with lifting boards and so forth. Gracie because she's that kind of gal that she can like helping on a construction site and still retain every ounce of devastating style. And Pepper because it isn't her thing, and I sort of playfully goaded her into it just for the delightful spectacle of watching her do a little carpentry. And it was great. She'll probably do more, too, by the time we're done with it. But if her contributions are of the culinary variety only, she still gets a gold star from this extreme softy of a foreman. Well, we didn't get the whole first floor done on Saturday, as I had vainly hoped. I was never a very fast framer due to the overthinking issue previously discussed, though I am satisfied with my competence. Another thing was that my third load of lumber from Menards wasn't delivered until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and then they forgot a bunch of stuff that we needed to keep going. Three buckets of nails, 45 joist hangers, 12 tubes of spooge. They dropped it off later in the afternoon after some frantic phone calls, but they still forgot the buckets of eight penny nails. Incidentally, Menards is absolutely the cheapest place from which to buy lumber here in the States. I saved nearly $900 on my first order as compared to going to a real lumber yard. And of course, you get what you pay for. Besides the fact that they mishandled the order, the lumber is all stored outside in the wind and the rain. And you have to often sort through it pretty hard in order to find pieces that aren't warped or split. Another one of those cases where time is money. From a biography, but whose? Some other man's, maybe, maybe mine. Which is why I underlined them in pencil one Sunday afternoon last July. See if you know. Page 19. Quote, Both a devout Christian and an independent thinker, and he saw no conflict in that. Not a man of the world. He enjoyed no social standing. He was an awkward dancer and poor at cards. Page 30. He wrote, What has preserved our family life in such numbers, health, peace, comfort, and mediocrity? I believe it is religion, without which they would have been rakes, fops, sots, gamblers, starved with hunger, or frozen with cold, scalped by Indians, etc., etc., then melted away and disappeared. 
That virtue and independence were among the highest moral attainment, he never doubted. Page 35. Having discovered books, he was seldom ever to be without one for the rest of his days. Page 38. He perceived life as a stirring drama like that of a theater. Page 40. Keeping a journal. Page 41. Increasingly, however, the subject uppermost in his mind was himself, as waves of loneliness, feelings of abject discontentment over his circumstances, dissatisfaction with his own nature, seemed at times nearly to overwhelm him. He wrote, I have no friends, no books, no time. I must therefore be content to live and die an ignorant, obscure fellow. That such spells of gloom were failings in themselves, he was painfully aware. Yet he was at a loss to know what to do about it. Page 47. Why have I not genius to start some new thought, he wrote, some thing that will surprise the world? Why could he not bring order to his life? Why could he not clear his table of its clutter of books and papers and concentrate on just one book, one subject? Why did his imagination so often intervene? Why did thoughts of girls keep intruding? He wrote, Ballast is what I want. I totter with every breeze. To many he seemed prickly, intractable, and too often he was. But he had, as one of his friends wrote, a heart formed for friendship and susceptible to the finest feelings. He needed friends, prized old friendships. Page 48. Yet he often felt ill at ease, hopelessly awkward. In the presence of women, those who he wished to oppress above all, he was too susceptible to the least sign of approval. He wrote, Good treatment makes me think I am admired, beloved. So I dismiss my guard and grow weak, silly, vain, conceited, ostentatious. Fascinated by nearly everyone he encountered. Page 51. Her face and her heart have no correspondence, he wrote. Page 62. At home. Thinking, he wrote on Christmas Day. The truth, it may seem like a stretch, but it's thoughts like this that catch my troubled head.
I'm Joel Duick. You can contact me at joel at jduick.net or publicly via my Twitter account, twitter.com slash joel d.